Bring the good old bugle, boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. Sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through Georgia. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. This episode will be our conclusion of my extended uh, look at Civil War writings um, as collected by the Library of America. Uh, so, our next episode after this will be. Uh, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I've been looking at the Mark Twain books and deciding how I'm going to go about it. I'm going to go through it volume by volume rather than chronological because um, it's just a little bit easier to do it that way. But I'll start with the Mississippi writings, then move on to Innocence Abroad and Roughing It. Then we'll do uh, Prince and the Pauper and Joan of Arc and Connecticut Yankee. Um, then I think, then we'll look at uh, like the other travel logs, the travel books, the other, the later travel books. Then we'll look at uh, the later novels in the Gilded Age. For some reason, Library of America put the Gilded Age with the later novels, which doesn't make much sense because the Gilded Age was like his first book. Um, and then we'll look at his essays and stories because that format we've been doing for a while, right? So we're going to wait uh, several months before we get back to that. So we're going to stick with books for uh, the foreseeable future. And I think I have a surprise for you coming up in, in, in a month or so. We'll, we'll, we'll see how long it takes for that to, to get ready. Um, but anyways, let's jump into this final collection of, of, of documents. Um, clearly what we're dealing with here is, is Lincoln's assassination and the surrender. So that's, you know, there's not that much maybe to talk about. Everything's sort of resolved here. Um, but it, it was uh, it was still fun to read these, these particular documents today when I looked at them. Um, the first two we have kind of are paired together because they're both Kentucky uh, slaves, both women, both who have husbands serving in the front line. Uh, talking about the tensions with their masters. So the problem was, although the 13th Amendment was passed, uh, and it could be imposed on southern states, uh, and of course it didn't really need to be applied in the northern states, except to the extent it makes the things like the Future Slave Act null and void, which they had been pretty much since the war began anyways. Um, the question was those border states that didn't yet ratify the end of slavery. Maryland did. Kentucky didn't. Um, so what happened to those slaves, right? Because until it was ratified nationally, that would take a while, right? That took a few months. So these people were still slaves. Um, but obviously the policy of the, of the nation was to, move, was to free them. So these were people who um, were trying to secure their freedom in various ways. And both of these people ran away, uh, although uh, due to the harsh treatment of their masters. So they were able to kind of make a case for why they should be free immediately and not have to wait till till Kentucky actually ratified it or until um, until it was ratified nationally. I don't know much to say, but just how 
some people were just holding on, you know, white knuckle to their slaves into the into the final moment, I suppose. Um, so, but these are good, um, and, they're, and they're touching stories too, where you know these people have children and they're still enslaved, and and they don't know what's happened to their husband who's in the front lines, and we have people who, like in one case, one of the, um, what's it the the Camp Nelson refugees? These were people who were living in Camp Nelson, and then there was like some deaths there, so they liquidated Camp Nelson, and these refugees didn't have anywhere to go, and some ended up back with their masters, so it was kind of a rough uh, situation um, with that, and these these women were put into that, that situation, and they had to appeal to the government for, for their freedom. Uh, we don't really know the outcome of these, at least I don't have them here, but Eventually, in December of 1865, the 13th Amendment would be fully ratified and, and freedom would come for, for all these, um, these slavery remnants that are still out and about. So after this, we have a bunch about the evacuation and destruction of Richmond. Um, these are witness accounts of that. We don't really have any battles to speak of here, but um, you know we do have a few front lines perspectives here and there in these last documents but uh, we got a lot of civilian accounts of the evacuation of Richmond really they do a good job of describing the chaos of of Richmond the fire that spread of course fire destroyed Richmond during you know after the Confederacy left and it was occupied um, and of course it, the first troops in the first Union troops in were African-American troops so that was symbolically very very important for, for the Union army um but yeah not i guess too much to say there's one guy here john b jones who's a soldier and he's kind of he talks about the um if i can find it yeah he actually talks about the battle that led to the abandonment of the of the, the petersburg you know richmond camp you know whatever the confederate war effort there was abandoned and those troops retreated leaving richmond open he, he talks about that um and he's really uh sort of down he's just talking about how he's going to wait his fate there's not much he can do he's not going to flee with the with the other troops or he's, he's staying with and he gets all sorts of rumors that's there's th these this these documents are actually full of rumors because we've seen them throughout these selections but they're really intense here because the confederacy is falling there's questions about what the peace deal is all sorts of rumors about that and then when lincoln's assassinated there's all sorts of rumors about you know who was killed was seward killed was lincoln still living you know all those kinds of questions um but anyways um Meanwhile, we have George Templeton Strong showing uh, off his jubilation at the fall of Richmond, meetings of the Union's Club. He describes the, the feeling in New York at the time when he um, heard about the news as the 4th of July and one of the greatest days in American history. Uh, now, he is himself going to go to Richmond as part of the Sanitary Commission that he works for. We haven't talked much about his role in the war you know mostly he was known as a diarist as someone who wrote this voluminous records of the civil war from from new york but he also worked in the war effort in the sanitary commission dealing with wounded soldiers and and stuff like that but he also makes the point of how black soldiers were the first to enter enter richmond right? writing we shall long remember that the first troops to enter richmond were 
and word of Weitzelt's core, it is a most subjective fact. It is said there were abundant signs of union feeling in the city. Lee, Davis, and company are supposed to be making for Burke's Junction. Litchburger, Danville is doubtless their proposed harbor of refuge. And then he kind of predicts the, the total fall of the Confederacy shortly. Now, continuing on with the fall of Richmond, we have uh, Thomas Morris Chester writing to the Philadelphia Press. Now, he's a black correspondent embedded in the military, and so he is uh, reporting. This is surprisingly, I think this is the first document we've had by him. I don't, don't think we've seen him before. Um, I wonder what else he wrote, because this is a pretty good article. Um, he really meditates on the symbolism of black soldiers being the ones to enter into Richmond first. Uh, oh, the overall impact of black soldiers in the war effort is something that's on his mind, of course. Uh, he talks a lot about the desertions, the the falling apart of the Confederate Army in the lead up to this. And, and currently, there seem to have been a lot of Confederate soldiers hanging around Richmond as kind of, you know, basically in a surrendered state. Um, although, I, I don't, it doesn't sound like they're being rounded up, really. It's just like, yeah, the war's over at this point for these people anyways yeah that's a feeling in 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 several of these documents is just yeah the war's over i'm done or you know whatever the fate may be whatever you know well booth is is kind of one of these people who thought there was still hope but very few soldiers on the front seem to hold out much hope for a victory in the future um anyways uh Chester here also talks about unionists in the city. This is the second time we've heard about a strong unionist presence in the city. I don't know if these are opportunistic kind of unionists or these are people who are these really as that song, the, the marching through Georgia make it say there's this population of people who wept in tears when they saw their flag they haven't seen for so long, right? That's the something like that's the lyrics in marching through Georgia. Are those are these the people in Richmond too? That you know we haven't heard too many voices from unionists in this collection, um, and I, yeah, there are some. But it, is, did the editor just not include them, or is this like an overblown belief? Lincoln certainly seemed to have an exaggerated belief in the number of unionists in the South. Um, you know, or is it just that people like when the war's over, they just flip sides because it's going to make their life easier if they do it. Um, Chester also talks about the arrival of Lincoln to Richmond. Um, reminder of just the president putting himself in harm's way, really. That couldn't have been the safest trip for him. And that's not the first time he was like near battles. He was shot at during the Jubal Early raid on Washington. You know, he's leading from the front, I, I think it's safe to say. Um, not that Davis isn't either, I guess. He's. They moved the capital to Richmond, too, just near the front lines. And that Richmond was often in, in trouble during the war, too. But Lincoln, like, entered this place where, you know, he could have been assassinated. Of course, he would be assassinated later um, in Washington. Um, there's a lot here, too, about how white soldiers were seeing black soldiers and treating them with respect. They're, they're, I think Chester here is really emphasizing some of the symbolic aspects of, of the of the struggle in term, you know, especially this, the, the black soldiers leading the occupation of the city. Now, one of my favorite documents here is Gideon Wells's reflections in his diary on April 7th about the war and the war's over at this point uh, for the most part. But he's, he's thinking back on, on this with a bit of bitterness and 
and a little bit of, of sarcasm too. Um, he kind of starts here by judging the generals and saying Grant is a genius and a great military talent and underestimated. And at the same time, he sees Lee just as a war criminal. Um, and a traitor. He doesn't really comment on his skill as, as a general, if he did have that. I'm not convinced of that. But he says, he showed great weakness and his infidelity to the country, which educated and employed and paid him, betrays gross ingratitude. And then he talks about the rebellion as a whole, saying it was just filled with chivalry and like this aristocratic arrogance and uh, kind of a belief in almost medieval concepts of of, of honor and things like that and then all of that is just to cover up a big pile of shit which is slavery right so um and just class relations he does a really good job here of talking about the contrast between this kind of aristocratic ruling elite in the south and the masses or sort of just spit upon and ground to dust uh slaves and poor whites alike um those who did not own slaves and who labored with their own hands, who depended on their exertions for their livelihood, who were mechanics, traders, and tillers of soil, were, in their estimate, inferiors who would not fight, were religious, and would not gamble, moral, and would not continence dueling, were, end quote. So part of this, too, is the attitude towards the Yankees of the, of the Southern leadership, that somehow the North would not fight. Um, he, he's really hard on Southern women as well for kind of propping up this chivalric, chivalry and this nonsense. Um, and he hopes this war maybe can wipe out the arrogance of this, this aspect of Southern culture. And I think it's fair to say it didn't entirely do that. We've seen in this podcast enough examples of post-Civil War Southern writings. Uh, we spent a lot of time on those that show the survival of a lot of the most toxic ideas of the, of the pre-war South. Um, next, we have Grant writing to Lee on surrender terms. They're fairly formulaic there's not much to say about here it's just basically about what arms can people keep it's a it's an unconditional surrender but there's no politics involved there's no policy we'll see sherman's negotiation with johnson which is a little bit later would have some kind of more political stuff but it's it's kind of cagey this is doesn't even bring politics it's just yeah you're surrendering officers can keep their sidearms everything else is to go people can go home you know if you're an officer you're on parole essentially and and we might call on you that, that's kind of the surrender terms fairly generous it seems next we have lee's farewell to his soldiers don't want to say much about that it's like lost cause bullshit uh you know you're all brave and devoted and and we got we we lost due to you know overwhelming force yeah overwhelming numbers and resources why we were defeated nothing about the skill of the other side's army um just just outnumbered that's all it was about no other, no other problems there and and you fought to the end good job boys i'm skedaddling i don't know about you that's kind of what it comes down to um okay now lincoln assassination um I think our, the first document chosen as a as a memoir of the Lincoln assassination is quite touching. It's Elizabeth Keekley Keckley. She wrote a book later on called Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. She was a former slave who got a job 
basically as a domestic servant in the White House. And in 1868, she wrote her memoirs talking about her experiences serving the Lincolns in the White House. And so she's got a particularly close relationship with uh, Mary Lincoln, Mrs. Lincoln, as she calls her throughout. And she's not there for the assassination. She's in the White House, but she's sees them go and sees Mrs. Lincoln return and hears the news and tries to console her and sees her suffering and all that. So that's basically the story we get. It's um, very narrative in its approach to writing it uh, with quotation marks and actual conversations being retold here. Um, the, the kind of weird aspect of this document is how she seems to talk about the staff of the White House foretelling the assassination or saying something like, well, Lincoln's got to be more careful. He puts his head out there too much. He might get assassinated one of these days. And then like that very day he gets assassinated. So I don't know how much we should probably take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Maybe it's just giving some drama to the tale. But the descriptions of, of Mary Lincoln's, you know, response to this or, you know, she had, we kind of remember this, right? When we think about, Mary Todd Lincoln, like her husband's brains are on her dress, right? It's like I'm someone's not going to come out of that normal at all, right? And the kind of her mental health issues have been talked about quite a lot. It's and it's documents like this that maybe reinforce this idea of her as hysterical and and inconsolable or whatever. But yeah, you try it someday. You try to like deal with you know your husband's brains and blood on the on your on your on your on your, on your lap or whatever you know being that close to an assassination hearing the gunshot all that stuff pretty pretty horrific stuff to to imagine um really good document though um next we have uh george templeton strong i think this is the last document we have from him talking about the assassination of lincoln um he says, also, I was kind of predicting this was going to happen. I, I think a lot of people are probably saying that, you know, it's, you know, and I was actually thinking about this, too. It's like kind of surprising no one took a shot at him earlier, considering just how public he was as a president, how much he was out there giving speeches. And it didn't seem there was much security. This is before the Secret Service or whatever. So it's, you know. It's when the war ends, you know, it's kind of, that's, I mean, if you think back to uh, um, Booth's original plan, it was just to kidnap Lincoln and, and kind of force some kind of concessions or something from him. The idea of, of murdering him came later. It was an afterthought. So maybe people weren't thinking in those terms. Um, he was, of course, the first president to be assassinated, not the last. Um but his conclusion, Strong's conclusion here, is that we must deal with the rebels brutally as a, as a response to this. Um, and then next we have Gideon Wells' diary. This is our last uh, entry by him. Such a good source, such a good, uh, great window into the White House. Um, he's been, he gets the news of Lincoln's assassination. He's not there, but then he is there when he dies. So he's watching him die, and he's there at his bedside when he dies, and he talks about Johnson taking over the presidency. Now, the most important thing about this document, beyond, I mean, beyond the close description of 
of Lincoln's prolonged death. I mean, it was not a quick thing. It took it took hours and hours for that to happen. But is the secession stuff uh, of Johnson and the discussions about Reconstruction? Because that's always going to be kind of a historical question is what Lincoln's Reconstruction would have looked like. I've brought that up a few times. I have my own thoughts about it, but there's the the traditional answer is that Lincoln and Johnson were not that far apart on Reconstruction because they both wanted to see the political Reconstruction more quickly and maybe weren't as invested in black civil rights. I think that second part is the question. It's one thing to say, yeah, let's restore the Union quickly and get these states on a, on a functioning basis. That doesn't mean Lincoln was not going to be fully supportive of a more radical approach to, to, to black rights. Obviously, Johnson wasn't. Johnson was not invested in that at all. But we have this here. He says, the general policy of treating the rebels and rebel states was fully discussed. President Johnson is not supposed to treat treason lightly and the chief rebels he would punish with extreme severity. It's presented here as severe, but that was actually the softer policy, right? Only punish the high ranking people. Don't embrace the ironclad oath idea, which would have meant you, anyone who was like served in the army would have been forever forbidden from voting rights and things like that. Um, Stanton, uh, going on, Stanton had divided his original plan and made the reestablishment of state governments applicable to North Carolina, leaving Virginia, which has a loyal government and governor to arrange that matter of election to which I had expected, but elaborated for North Carolina and the other states. Basically, that's all hints of a, of a, of a more rapid approach to, to Reconstruction. Um, the next document we have is William Sherman writing to Grant and Halleck, the, the military command, about the peace deal with Johnson. That's the other major army that's still in the field at this point. Um, and the this one has more political aspects than Grant's surrender terms to Lee. It's um, it talks about more like the disbanding of the Confederate armies, reestablishing federal courts in the South, uh, the recognition of the executive power of the United States government, um, the duties of the U.S. government towards the people who surrender and the and the citizens of the South. These are pol- these are issues. Of that are going to be played out in Reconstruction. They're not really issues that Sherman has the right to negotiate with Johnson. And he even says it at the end, like, we're not fully empowered to to these principles. It's more like a statement of principles on what the surrender would be. I, I don't know if this got anyone into trouble later on or complicated Reconstruction. I don't really think so, but... Um, Sherman was actually going to start doing something more like what Grant did with a very simple, just about like what to do with the arms and the troops kind of surrender. What would be the, you know, the part like the parole for officers and things like that. But for whatever reason, he found he had to change his mind because of um, requiring some political concessions to get the surrender, final surrender of Confederate Army. So maybe it was worth it to save lives. Um, So next we have Sarah Morgan's diary. From Louisiana, I think we've met her before. She's uh, a Southerner and a Confederate loyalist, and she talks about Lincoln's assassination. And she's of mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, and this is a view we hear from several people here, is that uh, Lincoln would have been a softer, been better to the South in alternatives, and, and that I'm not sure is true. 
compared to Johnson. But for whatever reason, this idea was that things that Lincoln was saying at the end of the war gave confidence to Southern civilians that they'd be fairly well treated under under Lincoln after the war ended. And now there's this like ambiguity about what that would be. So that's one common view. But at the same time, she's kind of happy about it. Um, she kind of... She says, a man who is progressing to murder countless human beings is interrupted in his work by the shot of an assassin. I mean, it's hard to read that and not think this woman is kind of glad that Lincoln has been killed. But at the same time, she's like, oh, I'm, I'm just a lady and I, I don't have a right to say such things. And it's not it's above my pay grade or or whatever. Let the historians discuss this. But you can tell there's a little bit of glee in her in her writing, I think. You know, the this oh the futility of bloodshed and let's stop the fighting. That's that's her kind of taking on this kind of her 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 persona as a female writer, I think, in that culture at that time. But there's a there's a bitterness and a bloodthirstiness in her too, I think. Um next we have a couple like Davis letters. One is Lee to Davis. This is all April eighteen sixty five, by the way. Um Lee to Davis justifying surrender basically he says like the army so he when he's writing the troops he blames the Grant's overwhelming force and when he writes to Davis he's basically blaming the troops he says like the army was in a bad state and everyone was deserting and it was like a it was a total shit show what was I supposed to do I, I really couldn't sustain the war effort any longer it's like like my, my horse was about to desert that's how bad it was right um, you know, just total collapse of, of the of the war effort. And then he's like, well, I guess we could go guerrilla war. We could go partisan war, but that's not going to, that's going to kill people and it's not going to really change the result of the war. So just surrender. Just It's over. So Lee did one good thing. Told, told, told Davis not to fight it out in a guerrilla warfare. Of course, we would get our own guerrilla war with the Klan and the White Leagues and that stuff during Reconstruction, but that's another story. Um, then we have Davis writing to Verena, uh, Verena Howell Davis, his wife, a uh, bunch of nonsense about how the war could have been won even in the last months. Like it was, it's like, you see so much of that in these documents. It's like from women saying like, Oh, we're, the tide's going to turn as late as like March and fe February, 1865 to him saying like basically the same thing. It's like, we, you know, if we just wouldn't have made a few mistakes at the end. We could have still won if my plan would have worked. He's like Hitler in the bunker, you know, imagining some you catastrophe that would save the save the war. And then he blames Lee for the surrender. It's all kind of disgusting. These these letters back and forth. He does conclude though that the Union means oppression, and so yeah. But what can I do? The war's over. So I guess the final thing to talk about here is is like the soldier's perspective on the end of the war. Um, we have two documents that speak to this. One is Stephen Minot Weld writing to his si older sister Hannah 
he was a soldier who was captured and now that the world's over was paroled and free to go home and he talks about how he doesn't know what he's going to do it's really like a you know if you know that movie the best years of our lives where these soldiers return from world war ii to america and don't really know how to fit into society anymore it's or like all quiet on the western front has that theme too it's just the trauma of war the, you're used to something about war as bad as it is it's something you're used to it's something that's predictable it's it's something you've gotten used to and now you're supposed to go back and be a, a woodcutter or a topper or a cooper or a cobbler or whatever it's like or a farmer it's just like it's hard to go back to that life and it's you're not going to be interacting with people who haven't seen you in years and don't really can't relate to you or can't relate to your experiences anymore it's really a hard thing you feel bad for these people. He's kind of shocked at the end of the fighting because he's kind of left up in the air of what to do. Uh, we have a Confederate view on the same issue by Samuel T. Foster from his diary written between April 18th to May 4th. And this is a longer selection because it's not a letter. It's like a diary written over several days. And so we see it almost written. We have almost this uh, stream of consciousness kind of writing because he's taking it up every day and amending what came before and, and revising it. And he asked what the war was for and what was it about. He's also shocked. He's unable to accept the terms, unable to see the war as fully de defeated. Um, and he wonders if opinions can change. He thinks the country is just this deeply divided and, and really the fundamental issues aren't going to change. All that's there is force. Um, and he says there's, there are those who are going to want to continue fighting. So he's predicting here. Actually, this guy, I, I, I didn't look him up, but I don't know if there, there is a Wikipedia entry for him or any other research about this particular person. It is, a, I think, a fairly well-known primary source. This is the kind of guy you could see joining up with the Klan, right? Because the guy kind of did it. The guy who couldn't accept the war being over, the guy who still you know, has belief in the cause, you know, yeah, he's that kind of guy. But he has that same feeling of, of just anxiety and worry about what life is going to bring them after the war. Um, anything else here? There's a few more documents uh, dealing with the Grand Review. But one I wanted to mention, because I did mention in last episode when I was looking up what documents are in this section. That is Ellen Renshaw House's diary from um, 1865. And... I was excited because this was going to, I thought we were going to get the end of the story of what happened to her because she had to leave Kentucky because of the Union occupation. And she was a hardcore Confederate and they, the general kicked out those, those women mostly. It was like a gendered thing. Remember that? But not much here. Just She just talks about the humiliation of losing and rumors about, you know, what the surrender is going to mean, what the fate of slavery is going to be, what the fate of the Union is going to be. So... Not that interesting at the end of the day. Um, yeah, we got a couple documents on the Grand Review, which was kind of a, in May of 1865, which kind of closed off the war. It was kind of the last uh, moment a lot of these people would spend in uniform before returning home. Um, but uh, one document does make a point that black soldiers were not primary, were not the focus of the Grand Review, um, unfortunately. Although they were put, they were the first into Richmond, and they helped turn the tide of the war. They were central to the war effort. They suffered as much, if not more, as the as the white soldiers. They were not made part of the Grand Review, which shows the, the symbolically, I think it's important when we think about Reconstruction. And then the final is the Juneteenth document. If you um, 
don't know about this, Juneteenth is a holiday in which uh, is the end of slavery is celebrated. Well, why that date? Why not the date of the ratification of the of the Thirteenth Amendment or the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment or the Emancipation Proclamation? Because well, that'd be January first. That's one reason we don't do that. But why Juneteenth? Um, June nineteenth is the exact date. Well, that's because that is uh, the date Gordon Granger gives his General Order Number Three. Uh, in Texas, in Galveston, enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation, bringing freedom to the remaining enslaved uh, men and women in Texas. And this is, is why that is celebrated as an African-American holiday to this day. So that's it. That's my uh, coverage of the American Civil War. And, and yeah, we're just going to stay in this period of history for a while because we're going to... Uh, move on and talk about uh, Mark Twain's writings. We'll start with Mark, we'll start with Tom Sawyer. Then we'll do Life on the Mississippi and then Huck Finn and then Puttingham Wilson. And then we'll go from there and see where it takes us. Um, I'm very, very excited to start uh, the, this series. Um, I'm hoping to have a lot of fun with it. So um, if you have any thoughts or questions at all about these 28 episodes on the American Civil War, um, Please let me know if if you want to know more about the American Civil War. There are many places you can go look, uh, but I recommend you go back and maybe listen to my earlier episodes on that. If you missed a few of them, it's uh, most of the events and themes and issues of the Civil War are covered, even if I downplay some of the military tactical stuff. Um, I think I covered most of the major issues I can imagine covering. Um, and this uh, that's just a testament to the depth and the richness of this particular anthology so if you want you know i think that's a great place to go if you want to know more about the civil war but don't want to read a standard history book go pick up this anthology four volumes it's very very good so um that's it for now i will see you next time as we jump into the adventures of of tom sawyer Thanks for listening. For freedom and her train, 60 miles in latitude, 300 to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain. While we were marching through Georgia, hurrah, hurrah, we bring the jubilee.